The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to be talking again about conflict. And I don't know about you, but everybody I've been talking to in the last month is struggling with one version of conflict from another, whether it's conflict with peers or conflict with a boss. In fact, most of the time it's conflict with a manager. And that is going to be the subject of our conversation today. So we want to talk not just about conflict and how do you make conflict work to your advantage, but more importantly, how do you deal with conflict when there is a power difference between the two party and conflict, such as boss subordinate. I think you're going to find the combination of these two make for some very interesting insights on what we can do around conflict. So with me today is Rob Ferguson. Rob has is a practicing psychologist and an executive coach. He's associated with the Raleigh Consulting Group in Research Triangle Park in my local part of the country, North Carolina. And he's been working with executives and managers and entrepreneurs to resolve conflicts and be able to influence individuals and teams. He's written several books, but the one in particular that we're going to focus on is called Making Conflict Work, Harnessing the Power of Disagreement, and that's co-authored with Peter Coleman. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, Wanda. Thank you. Great to be here. Lovely. Looking forward to it. Um, and I can't tell you, I think the way that you guys have talked about this in terms of conflict and power is such an important piece. This week, every single person I interacted with around conflict or difficult personality or challenge situation ended up being with the boss. So, Rob, when you say power, what do you mean by power? Or And are there different kinds of power? Yeah, that's a great question, and I like what you said in your introduction, that so much of conflict is happening between bosses and subordinates, and that's really why we wrote this book, because other great books like Crucial Conversations, Difficult Conversations, Getting to Yes, these are really wonderful books that I recommend to a lot of people, but they barely mention power differences as a factor in conflict, and they and when they do mention it, they don't really offer strategies. So Dr. Coleman and I wrote this book to help people deal with really what we think is probably the majority of conflicts in organizations, certainly the, the trickier conflicts, when power is unequal. And so, great question, what is power? There's a lot of definitions out there. We decided to, to use a very straightforward definition of power to help people grasp it quickly. We say that power is the ability and resources to make things happen. Someone with power 
can get things done or get what he or she wants or make the organization move forward. That's power. And to your second question, are there different forms of power? Absolutely. We say that there are the more obvious, the most obvious form of power is what you might just call authority or title, or in the military it's rank. So if I'm your boss, I have formal power. But there's also informal power, which might not show up in a title or or formal authority, but it's other forms of influence, of you, as you have discussed in other episodes of your show. Credibility, emotional intelligence, social skills, the ability to inspire people. These can also get things done even when you don't have a title. So when there's inequality in any one of these forms of power, it complicates conflict. All right, Rob. So I spend a lot of time with people helping them understand what I call the political landscape. And when I describe the political landscape to people, I have a simple model for helping people understand both the formal hierarchical power, as in who formally gets to decide on this, allocate budget, etc., Mm-hmm. Um, who's held accountable for the delivery of the results at the end of the day. And I look at informal power, for, which for me always turns on relationships. So the stronger my relationships with a variety of people, the more informal power I think I have. Now, you added some other things to that. You added credibility and EQ. Well, so how right. d- We think that um, there are various forms of power, anything that, it's not quite a synonym, but you could say when you have the ability to influence somebody, you have power. That's what informal power essentially is. I can make things happen even though I don't have a formal title. But it's how I use power that has a lot to do with how I make things happen. So we outline four approaches to power, four different ways of thinking about power in an organization that have big implications. Okay. So the first one is power over. We call it power over. If you're in a position of authority and you can dominate someone or you can influence whether they work there or not, you have power over. But there's also power with, which is teamwork or cooperation. If you and I are on the same team, Wanda, in an organization, we are sharing power. And our power is partly because we are working with each other. The third one is power apart from. So in some situations, teamwork is not necessary. I have the power of independence or autonomy. I can make things happen because of my own individual skills. And finally, the one that most people either don't notice or don't understand is what we call power under. Sometimes a subordinate has hidden power or subtle ways of influencing the people above him or her to achieve their goals. So we see power as multifaceted. Even though we give it a straightforward definition, we think it has nuances and different dimensions. And the more a person in an organization understands power, both the political landscape, as, as you said, and the sources of power and how to use it, the more effective that person is going to be in leadership in general, but specifically we address being effective in conflict. 
Okay. I want to get to the impact of this on conflict, but let's make sure we understand the four ways we can use power. So to go back to recap, there is formal authority power and there's an informal power. Mm-hmm. And then there are four ways to use whichever power I have. Power over, meaning I can make you, as in regulatory or boss or compliance, or two, power with, when we're collaborating, we're a team where we're sharing power. Power apart from, meaning I'm the expert and I can have my own power quite independently of everybody because you listen to my authority as the expert. And then power under, which is often the hidden power of people lower in the organization to influence how things get done. Give me an example of what power under could look like. Well, first I'll give you a a universal example, then I'll be more specific. Uh, Who has more power in a family, the parent or the the (laughs) five-year-old? All right, fair. (laughs) Now, on the formal level, the parent better have more power. The parent better be making the main decisions. But uh, kids can influence parents through charm, through cuteness, through tantrums, through uh, hiding. You know, there's, there's a power to the child that isn't obvious at first because they're lower on the totem pole, but they have influence over the pattern, over the, the parent, that is. But now let's talk about organizations because our book is really about uh, families. I was using that as a metaphor. Suppose you're the administrative assistant of a powerful executive. Certainly, no. the executive is the obvious power holder. And that executive, he or she has power over that administrative assistant. But if that administrative assistant is the gatekeeper or the only person in the office who can use a certain software or can get other uh, people in the office to, to do things that the powerful executive can't, that administrative assistant has power under a subtle layer of power that isn't obvious to most people, but if that person is savvy, he or she can use their power under to achieve both their goals and the goals of the organization. Okay, I get that. So gatekeepers, but we can also have junior staff, for example, who know how a spreadsheet was put together better than anybody else, and they have power under a high, somebody who has much more authority, formal authority, got it, because of their knowledge and their skills and whatever they've done. Okay, so now give me an example about how power and conflict come to bear. So why does conflict differ so much when there's power involved? Well, from the, um, let's take it from the two different perspectives. From the low power perspective, if I'm a subordinate and I'm in conflict with my boss, of course it depends on the type of boss I have, which we'll talk about more later. But if I'm afraid of my boss and if I think my paycheck is in jeopardy or I don't think I'm going to get the assignment I want or anything else that I want, that I think my boss can deny me or, or at least interfere with, I'm going to be playing things real carefully. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to protect my job, my career. And one of the ways I protect it is to play it safe. I'm not going to share all my opinions. So if I'm in a low-power position, I might be keeping conflicts hidden. Because when we talk about conflict, we're talking about honesty. That's one of the things you... When, when we talk about this category called conflict... 
we're also talking about honesty, creativity, problem solving. If you shut those things down, the conflict is hidden, but it's still there, and it's harder to deal with. So okay. that complicates conflict, my fear or my need to protect myself. If I'm okay. in a high-power position, I may want my subordinates to be honest and creative, and I want their best ideas for pro- solving the many problems we encounter in our organization. But if I don't make them feel like it's okay to disagree with me, it's okay to take risks, then I'm living an illusion that you know, all, of us, all of us are putting our cards on the table. So conflict can be hidden because of fear, or it can just be shut down because I want to please the boss. And if I'm the boss and I'm not allowing for the free flow of information and honesty and creativity, I can't add the value to my organization that I'm expected to, to add. So most conversations, or most conflicts rather, within an organization are up and down the hierarchy, and many of them are hidden because of that. Okay. All right. So I love the statement. You say that conflict is about honesty and creativity and problem solving. Um, And I get that, that I guess I need to ask you to define, say a little bit more about how you define conflict in general. Well, just like we try to give power a straightforward definition, um, that's what we do with conflict. At At the simplest level, conflict is any disagreement between two people or, or two parties. We see things differently. We want different things. Now, the word conflict usually stirs up anxiety or fear in people because we have a stereotype of conflict of, of you know, people yelling at each other or things becoming very hostile, and certainly that's a high-intensity conflict. But many, many conflicts in organizations, there's no yelling, there's no raised voices, but we see things differently, and we either have to find a way to work them out or one person wins and the other person loses. So essentially, conflict is any difference of opinion or perspective that matters in an organization. Okay. All right. Any difference of opinion or perspective that matters. Now, one of the things that I say all the time to people about conflict is you get the advice of take the emotion out of conflict. But in my experience, when the conflict really matters, it's important it's hard to get rid of all the emotions. We can take it down, but get rid of it was hard to do. What's your perspective on that one? Well, our book is based on 25 years of research and a lot more scholarship that goes back farther than that, and our research is clear, and it supports what you, you know, what your instincts tell you, is that you cannot and should not take the emotion out of conflict. You know, that's the old stereotype. Keep emotions out of your decisions. Keep emotions out of conflict. Let's keep emotions out of the workplace. That's just a a fairy tale. Human beings are emotional creatures. They're not really that rational. Uh, You can bring rational thought and analysis into decisions and into conflict, but we get our feelings energized when we're in conflict. And we need to because emotions tell us what's important. You're right. We can bring emotions down. There's no room for screaming in any organization that's unnecessary so there's a a range of emotion where if it's if emotion is too high people cannot cooperate and things get destructive and if emotions are too low and we're being flat or robotic there's no passion nobody knows what's important 
So, as I said a minute ago, we cannot and should not take the emotions out of conflict, but we need to pay attention to the emotions. We need to listen. We need to have strong relationships whenever possible with our colleagues because the strong relationships and the uh, the passion of the conflict can help us get to a better place and be more creative and more innovative. Okay. All right. So fair enough. So, um, so we've talked a little bit about what power is, the formal power and the informal th- power. We've talked about the four different ways that you can use power. So power over, power with, power apart from, and power under. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked a little bit about what you mean by conflict, as in that conflict is the source of honesty and creativity and problem solving ultimately, and it carries emotion with it, and that is okay. So are there strategies and techniques for learning to deal with power or, or conflict in different forms of power. Where do we begin on this journey? Well, we start with having more respect for the power-conflict combination. Even before we get to specific strategies or techniques, it behooves any leader, or for that matter, anyone who works in an organization, to have more respect for power. Power is often ignored or it's, we pretend it doesn't exist. In fact, in my own industry, our own industry of training and consulting, uh, many, many consultants and trainers ignore power, and they ignore power differences, yeah, even though that's where most conflicts happen. I think we get pretty uncomfortable with talking about power differences, and so we put our head in the sand and and act as if conflict is just between two equals. And as I said, those very good books that I mentioned, like Crucial Conversations and Difficult Conversations, they all but ignore power as a factor in working through conflict. So we start with having a profound respect for power, power differences, and their inevitable effect on conflict. We have something in the book that we call power traps. This is what happens when you don't have a respect or an understanding of power. There's a number of ways that anyone in an organization can stumble or get in a lot of trouble or sabotage their own goals by overlooking the significance of power. So, for instance, someone in high power, let's say an upper-level executive or the CEO, just somebody with more power than others, there's a well-documented phenomenon, again, that we call, the label we give it is power conflict traps or power traps, where people in higher power get somewhat intoxicated by power. Not literally, but they become less inhibited, their empathy decreases. People, good, and I'm talking about good people, not you know, people with character problems, anybody is at risk for falling into this blind spot where you don't empathize as much with people because of your power, especially less empathy for the people below you, your subordinates. This can have huge consequences, as you can imagine. At worst, people in power break the rules and think they can, the consequences won't apply to them. But other 
mistakes that are made when empathy is decreased by the intoxication of power are things like an over-reliance on command and control. Many people in power resort to dominance much too often, and they may not realize it, but they're shutting down honesty and creativity, as I said before. And then there's a phenomenon where people in power just start to ignore their subordinates. I worked with a, a man a few years ago who was hired to continue the success of the person who replaced. The person who replaced was great at sales and marketing and management. And this guy was hired because his resume was so clearly, you know, he was brilliant at sales and marketing. But once he had this new level of power, he all but ignored his subordinates unless they were absolutely instrumental to some goal of his. And that just really crushed the morale of the team he depended on, and he was not successful. And I think he was sort of um, blinded by the power that he got in this job. So those are some of the risks or traps of having more power. But people in low power positions can also fall into traps. We have a, a phenomenon we talk about in the book called powerlessness corrupts. If you perceive that you don't have any power, whether that's accurate or not, but if you believe you have no power in an organization, none of the forms of power we discussed earlier, there's a good chance you're going to start to have uh, if not health problems, because there is, there are more health problems with people in lower power positions. But you're probably going to start resenting your perceived lack of power, and you're not going to be very effective if you're angry all the time at your work. Worst case scenario, people in low power might be tempted to sabotage or, or, not put effort into something. But even the best case scenario. If they think of themselves as victims or powerless, they're going to be more resentful. So that's step one. Whether you're in a relatively higher level of power or relatively lower level of power is to think about power, learn about it, read about it, so you're not naive as to its effects. That's where we okay. tell people to start. Okay. All right. So that makes a ton of sense to me, Rob. Both of the danger of power, of ignoring the toxicity of power for people who are in positions of high power, but equally not ignoring the positions for people who are in low positions of power. I see that all the time. People who feel like they have no alternative and they're just stuck and trapped and the anger and the frustration and the stress and the lack of focus and therefore the lack of engagement and ultimately the lack of performance kind of follow suit. Yeah. Um, and you see that in all sorts of ways. And more recently, I see it particularly among women who feel that it is a man's world and they have no option to play in that man's world and be an equal partner, contributor, et cetera. And that just leads to an absolute total sense of disengagement. So an interesting parallel. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a break, though, Rob. With me today is Rob Ferguson. Uh, Rob is a psychologist and an executive coach. The book we've been talking about is Making Conflict Work, Harnessing the Power of Disagreement. And the important part about all of this one is to recognize the importance of power in our interpersonal dynamics, particularly when we have differing, uh, 
disparate opinions on things that actually matter, both from the formal power and the informal power. So when we come back, I want to talk about how to deal with some of the conflict situations that occur that influence power and talk about some of the strategies we can use. And we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace, Every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Rob Ferguson. Rob is a practicing psychologist and executive coach who works with the Raleigh Consulting Group in the Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. He's been working for decades with executives, managers, and entrepreneurs on conflict and influence. Um, And the author of several books, the one we're talking about today is Making Conflict Work, Harnessing the Power of Disagreement, co-authored with Peter Coleman. So we have been talking about the importance of power and the notion that we often sweep power underneath the carpet as if it shouldn't exist or is a dirty word and to be ignored. But as Rob says, that that's a mistake because power is a reality and power influences the ways in which we approach conflict. So better to actually embrace it and recognize some of the traps that power brings. So to recap, we've talked about both formal, meaning hierarchical power, and informal power, meaning credibility, relationships, EQ. We talk about four ways of using power to power over somebody, having power with somebody, as in cooperation, having power apart from somebody, meaning being quite independent and autonomous, and having power underneath, meaning even as a subordinate, I have degrees of power over a very powerful boss by what I know and what I do. All right, so Rob, I want to talk for a little bit about strategies for dealing with conflict. And I know you do that by talking about recognizing the conflict situations you're in first. However, before we get to that, 
You also talk about two different mindsets or approaches to conflict at the beginning. What are those and why does that matter? Well, that's an excellent question because there's a stereotype or a misunderstanding that many people hold that all conflict is, in essence, competitive. If you and I disagree, we're competing. One of us has to win and one of us has to lose. Now, that was, you know, one of the first revolutions in, in uh, conflict theory came with the book Getting to Yes, and that's where the very popular phrase win-win solutions came from. And basically what that book and many books since then have talked about, and so does ours, is the difference between cooperative conflict, or win-win for short, and competitive conflict, or win-lose. Many people, as I said, still think of conflict as a form of competition, but conflict can be highly cooperative. So think of a team or a committee. They may disagree on some things, but if their goals are aligned, they are cooperative. So a lot of conflict in organizations is cooperative, and there's much research to show that the more you can push or pull conflicts into a cooperative domain, the more likely you're going to achieve great results. That being said, there are some conflicts within organization that are competitive, or at least they drift that way, and people turn against each other or their goals are not aligned. So this is one of the ways we help people understand the type of conflict they're in. The other misunderstanding is that Conflict is this monolithic phenomenon. And you say to somebody, so what situations are you dealing with at, at work? And they might say, oh, oh, the situation I'm dealing with is a conflict. Well, conflict might be an umbrella term, but there are actually seven different distinct conflict situations at work, and each one calls for a different strategy. So we also address that in our book, the different situations that pop up in organizations. Okay. All right. So before we go to talk about those seven different situations, which I think is really intriguing, I want to go back to this notion of conflict as competitive or cooperative. Okay. All right. So we'd all agree that when we can play win-win, that's the ultimate best game. It preserves relationships. Everybody feels good at the end of it. It's a greater good, wonderful things. But I contend that in corporate life, there are very few possibilities for win-win. An example, either I agree to this deadline or I don't agree to that deadline. Either I get the job or you get the job. Either I get the budget or you get the budget. There's not a lot of ways of doing that is a win-win. Occasionally there will be, but frequently not very often. I don't think that's what you mean, though, when you say that conflict, you would, that we have a cooperative mindset to conflict. Am I right? Yes. I'm, I, I agree with you that many conflicts in an organization, one person wins and one person loses. One person gets the promotion. Um, we can't agree on a deadline, and one is imposed upon me. Uh, so, yes, there are those. I'm talking about what mindset do we bring into a conflict? So let's go back to your deadline example. If I'm your boss and I assign you a deadline and you think it's unrealistic and I just dictate the deadline to you, that's a competitive conflict. But I have other options. 
maybe not all the time, but sometimes I can negotiate with you or get your input. I can use power with, even though I have the option to use power over. And so if you think of a continuum, think of a continuum or a spectrum, and at the left side of that horizontal continuum, there's the word cooperation, and at the right side, there's competition. In reality, many conflicts in organizations happen somewhere on that continuum. They're not purely cooperative, nor are they purely competitive. And maybe over time, they even move on that continuum. That's one of the things we argue in this book, is that power and conflict are more complex than when you first think about them. So, yes, it's more of a mindset, and and it's a way of thinking of, what are my options in this conflict? Can I make this conflict more cooperative? Well, I might not be able to if it's a a subordinate who's just not doing his job. I may not have the option of being cooperative. So sometimes you have to be competitive, you have to be dominant, but many times you have some options there. So we want people to think in terms of mindsets and options. Okay, so an option. It's a mindset and an option, okay? Mm-hmm. And neither one is necessarily bad. It's just the more frequently we drag it into the cooperative domain, the more likely we are to re- get resolution. That's what okay. Neither of these has a value of good or bad. It's what does the situation call for and what do I need to use to achieve my goals. Okay. All right, fair enough. So with that as a background, recognizing that as a mindset they carry with us, what are these seven different conflict situations? And I'd like to take one and then talk about what your strategy is for it, and then we'll go to the second one and talk about a strategy. Okay. Well, let's first talk about how we get there, because there's a set of questions that anybody can ask about any conflict at work that will help them I guess I can use the metaphor of diagnosis. You go to a doctor, and she asks you questions before she starts writing a prescription or applying a treatment because she needs to know, well, what's the medical situation here? So if we use diagnosis as a a metaphor, there are a set of questions that we ask in any conflict so that we can, quote, unquote, diagnose it. Of course, the first question we have to ask, even before we ask the diagnostic questions, is what is my goal? We argue that a conflict where there isn't a goal is inherently dysfunctional. So a conflict at work where people are just being nasty because they don't like somebody or just being difficult. Some personality conflicts don't really have goals. They just have personalities or or moodiness behind them. So you first have to ask when you approach a conflict with your subordinate or your boss or anybody else, what do I want? What do I want and what does the organization need? So it's good to identify a goal. Then we get to the three diagnostic questions. I'll say them in, in order and then I'll zoom in a little bit on each one. Question number one, how important is this relationship to my goals? Question number two, Is the other party with me or against me or some combination of both? Number three, is the other party more or less powerful than me or are we of equal power? So we call those the three basic conflict intelligence questions. Let's go back and zoom in on them a little bit. Question number one, as I said, is how important is this relationship to my goals? If I'm in conflict with my boss, 
how important is my relationship with my boss? That might have to do with how long I want to work here, what are my finances, do I like him or her, what are my goals, do I need him or her to help me achieve my goals. So it's a question about whether or not we're interdependent. Do I need the other person? The second question, is the other party with me or against me, goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Is this a cooperative setup or a competitive setup? Is this person willing to try and nudge the conflict to the left of that continuum I talked about before? Are we willing to try a cooperative approach and see if we can both get what we want through cooperation? Or is the person against me? Like you said, there's only one person going to get the promotion or the deadline is absolute. There's no room for negotiation and cooperation. That's question number two. And then the third one, and this goes back to power, is the other party with whom I'm in conflict more or less powerful than me, or are we equal? The answers to those three questions lead to the seven situations, each of which has a corresponding strategy. Okay. All right, so pick your favorite one or the one that you think is the most difficult or the, you know, the one you see the most common. And um, let's talk about how that plays out and more importantly, what do I do about it? All right, well, I'll tell you the one that in our, our workshops gets people the most uncomfortable, the biggest emotional reactions. So there's a situation where my answer to the first question, how important is the relationship, the answer is, uh, it's important. I need this other person. Are they with me or against me? They're against me. It's competing. And do I have more or less powerful than the other person? I have less power. So I need the relationship, but it's competitive. I can't pull it toward the cooperative, and I have less power. We call this situation unhappy tolerance and the story we tell in our book and a story I've heard many 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 times in my career as an executive coach and as a trainer is something along the lines of I worked for a dictator for a year or two in fact if I'm doing a workshop with 30 people in the room I usually say how many of you ever have a, how many of you have ever worked for a highly controlling boss essentially a dictator. Almost every hand goes up. And if one or two hands don't go up, I go and ask them about that. And they're usually 25 years old or, you know, their career's just gotten started and they're lucky. So I think almost everybody ends up at some point in their career working for, you know, for lack of a better word, a dictator or a high-control boss. And that can make you pretty unhappy. In fact, this is one of the situations where people are more likely to have upper respiratory problems, minor illnesses, stress, anxiety, depression. It's oppression. Basically, you're working in an oppressed situation. And the best organization is likely to have at least a few of these bosses. So it's not rare to be in a situation of unhappy tolerance. And then when we tell people that you can't really do this for more than a year or two, because that's what the research says. If you try and work under an oppressed, oppressive boss for more than a year or two, 
you're probably going to have health problems. That's about as long as a person can do it and still stay healthy. So in our book, we tell length the story of uh, a woman who worked for a dictator boss. And we call the strategy that corresponds with unhappy tolerance. And this is a phrase that always gets people to kind of react. Strategic appeasement. Wanda, when you when you first hear the word appeasement, what what feelings does it conjure up in you? Well, I think I'm unusual in this sense, but I think most people, when they hear appeasement, they say, "I am giving somebody something they want and they don't deserve it." And there's yeah. a bit of a "Why should I?" Yes, attitude. There's the resentment. Mm-hmm. Usually, resentment and um, and. I feel powerless in the yes. problem in the proce- yes. process. I feel powerless. I'm resentful. I don't have options. Yeah. So, um, one thing we like to say is, having less power does not make you powerless. And many people in a low power position, when they work for a high control boss, they believe they're powerless, but they actually probably have some options that come from our concept that we talked about earlier, power under. There are some subtle ways that when you work for a dictator or a high-control boss, you can still achieve some of your goals. And so we call that strategy, as I said, strategic appeasement. Are you familiar with the movie um, The Devil Wears Prada? Oh, yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I think it's one of the best movies ever made about organizations. That is a situation of unhappy tolerance. Um, the young character uh, who wants to get a line on her resume by working for that fashion magazine is in a position of unhappy tolerance, and at first she suffers for it, but about halfway through the movie she realizes strategic appeasement is the way to achieve my goals, which is to get a good line on her, my resume and a recommendation from this powerful boss played by Meryl Streep. So we usually show some clips from that in our workshops because it really shows how she figures out how to get some of her goals met, even though she has a high-control boss. So that's what we call strategic appeasement. And as in all of our chapters on these strategies, we offer ten tactics. A tactic is a specific behavior or a behavior pattern that you can do over time to implement the strategy. So your listeners might be interested in some of the specific things they can do if they're in this situation of unhappy tolerance to implement the strategy of strategic appeasement. So as I said, in each chapter we have 10 tactics, and one of our tactics is increase the dependence of the dictator. As we talked a little while ago, an administrative assistant might depend on the boss for a job, but the boss depends on that administrative assistant to get things done. And anytime there's dependence, you're in somewhat lower power. Dependence leads to some subordination. So I may be the executive, and you need me, but I need you. That interdependence gives you some power. Okay. And that goes back to the idea of someone in low power can function as a gatekeeper or a specialist in some kind of software. So we encourage people who perceive that they are powerless to look for opportunities 
to foster dependence in the high-control boss. Okay. And the more dependence you can foster, the more options you have. Okay. That makes a ton of sense to me. And I'm going to translate this. You talked about it in terms of a high-control boss, one you call a dictator. I'm going to give you a different scenario that I see all the time. Okay. And that is we have typically a woman, but often a man, um, and it's year-end performance review time or it's promotion time, and I want to get put forward for a promotion. And I need my manager's support on that because without it, not much is going to happen. So yeah. there, on question one, there is high need. And on question two, it's a competitive situation, even mm-hmm. though it may not be competitive with my boss because there will be five of us on the team. Two of us are up for it, but only one of us is going to get it. Okay, so and there's no way to nudge that into a more cooperative stance. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if you feel like the relationship with a boss isn't terribly strong, you know, it's hard to get that into a cooperative place. Mm-hmm. And you are dependent. You don't have a lot of power in that scenario because the boss holds the ultimate power on whether your name goes forward with a strong recommendation or not. Mm-hmm. So, and I see that that leads to what you call as unhappy tolerance all the time. And I also see that one of the things that people can do in the run-up to that one is to appreciate what it is that the boss needs from you. So we're now talking about how to increase the dependence and making sure that you are giving that to the boss in a timely manner in a way that appeases the boss's needs. So we're back to strategic appeasement. Mm -hmm. Very interesting scenario. Okay, Rob, we have to take another break. When we come back, we'll talk about another one or two of these scenarios and what you can do about them. So with me today is Rob Ferguson, psychologist and executive coach. The book that we've been talking about is Making Conflict Work, Harnessing the Power of Disagreement. The notion is that most conflicts in organizations actually involve degrees of power. And if you can recognize the ways in which power are affecting that relationship, you can identify which of seven situations you're in and then what your strategy should be for dealing with that conflict. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Your entrepreneurial vision has taken hold. Your business is growing. It's everything you hoped for. Or is it? With growth comes bigger headaches, more hiring, more capital, more customers to satisfy, more employees to manage, more plates to juggle, and more demands on your time. Get off that merry-go-round now. Tune in to The Business Edge with Marsha Zeidel. You'll meet street-smart entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their success stories as well as practical solutions to the unique challenges faced by growing companies. Heard every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel.
You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Rob Ferguson, a psychologist and executive coach. Rob has written several books on leadership in organizations, particularly around conflict and influence in teams and emotional intelligence. The one we've been talking about is making conflict work, harnessing the power of disagreement. The notion, again, is that power differences are part of most conflicts that we face in organizational life. So first, we want to embrace those powerful differences, and then we want to begin to understand the different scenarios that we find ourselves in. Three questions that are particularly critical for diagnosing which of seven situations. Question one, how important is this relationship to my goals? Question two, does the party with whom I'm in conflict Um, compete or cooperate, or are they with me or against me or some combination? And three, is the other party more or less powerful than me or is the power equal? When you answer those three questions, then you can diagnose which situation you're in and then there's a corresponding strategy that goes with each. And we just talked about the fact where there is high need for the relationship, there's a competitive stance, and the person has far more power than you do. So, Rob, let's talk about a different one. Um, I'll let you pick the second one. Let's talk about one, just as people struggle with strategic appeasement because the feeling of appeasement is so unpleasant, uh, many people, even though command and control is overused by many leaders, it's just as true that many leaders struggle to exercise dominance when that's what the situation calls for. So let's talk about that one because people struggle with it. Okay. Okay, great. So how does this play out? All right, so let's go back to our three basic questions. How important is this relationship to my goals? I'm, let's say I'm a manager, and I'm in conflict with a subordinate, but I need that subordinate. That makes the relationship important. Because the importance of the relationship isn't necessarily how much I like or dislike the person. It's do I need them to achieve my goals. So let's say I need the other person. Are they with me or against me? Well, let's say my subordinate is not cooperative, and although I've tried to get him or her to be more cooperative about the things we disagree about, I just can't. They um, don't deliver results uh, on time, but they're still important, or they push back in a difficult way. So they're not cooperative, they're competitive. And then the third question, is the other person more or less powerful than me? Well, if I'm the manager, if I'm the boss, they're less powerful. So here I am with an important relationship with someone who's competitive, and I have more power. The diagnosis of the situation or the label we give that situation is command and control. The strategy that's important and necessary to manage a command and control situation is something we call constructive dominance. And the reason we put the word constructive in front of the word dominance is because the word dominance all by itself usually conjures up some pretty negative stereotypes. We often think of 
people who are mean or even abusive, or as I said before, dictators. But dominance is also necessary in organizations, especially when you have a non-cooperative subordinate. So in our workshops, we often get people who just want to always cooperate when they're in a management position. They want everybody to get along. They want everything to be about teamwork, highly cooperative. And when they run into a difficult subordinate, they just don't know what to do. And so they can be very ineffective because they're unable to be dominant even when the situation calls for it. Thus the term constructive dominance. So this is a strategy where you need to let the other person know that you have more power. And if you can't pull them toward more cooperative, you have to assert your dominant authority. And as I said before, in all of our chapters for each strategy, we offer 10 specific tactics. So I thought I would share a few of those with you okay. for your listeners who struggle to be dominant when the situation calls for it. So one of our tactics is very straightforward. We just call it clarify authority. And by that we mean that sometimes it's necessary to remind a subordinate that not everyone in the organization has the same options or the same latitude. Now, some people think, as I said, that dominance means being mean or, or yelling, but you can actually be constructively dominant in a very reasonable, polite way. You can tell somebody, you know, I'm a very cooperative boss, and I want a lot of input, and I like a lot of cooperation, but in this case, I'm going to emphasize the word boss. I have to make a decision, and my decision is X, Y, or Z, and I need you to comply. So it's just a reminder, a straightforward but not hostile reminder that I have power over you. And that often is all it takes to get somebody to realize, oh, oh, okay, I guess I've got to do what you say. And then other times people are reluctant to use uh, any dominance because they think it will shut down all forms of cooperation. But sometimes teams need guidance. Sometimes they need uh, some sort of corral or fence around their decision. So another form of constructive dominance that doesn't involve any mean behavior or yelling is to use your influence over the ground rules and decision agendas and to guide people to optimal decisions. So in other words, you give a team a multiple choice. I need the team to decide which of these four options is the best way to complete this project. So you've you set limits around the decision, and in that sense, you've dominated it. They don't have complete freedom, Great. but you're also not taking all of their freedom away. So right. we, we talk Rob, about how to be dominant without alienating people. Fabulous. I love it, Rob. I can imagine we could go on and on about this one, and I certainly see lots of scenarios where this plays out. So, unfortunately, we have to end at this point. With me today is Rob Ferguson, who's been a psychologist, who is a psychologist and executive coach. The book that we've been talking about is Making Conflict Work, Harnessing the Power of Disagreement. The notion is power is part of conflict in organizations, and we need to learn to diagnose it and, therefore, to take actions that are logical and reasonable based on those actions. So, we've just been talking about a scenario. Uh, the questions are how important is the relationship 
where is it competitive or cooperative? And then is, um, I forget the third question here. Is the other person more or less powerful? More, more or less powerful. More or less powerful. Thank you very much. At any rate, Rob, thanks so much for the show today. It's been fabulous. I wish we could talk longer. Thank you, Wanda. And you might All just, right. uh, uh, your listeners might appreciate that we offer a free assessment at our website so you can begin okay. to find out what your conflict and power style is. And that website is makingconflictwork.com. Fabulous. Makingconflictwork.com for a free assessment. Thanks, Rob. And join us next week for with Ethan Schutz to talk about relationships and how we can better understand the dynamics between relationships at work. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week.